Hello, you're listening to Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast, presented by Brandon Elliott. This show will be going over all aspects of real estate investing and is intended to educate, motivate, and prepare you to take action on your first or next real estate investment. For more information, please visit BrandonElliottInvestments.com. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Welcome back, everyone, to Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Elliott. Uh, Very excited today. We have a special guest, somebody that I look up to. And I originally actually found you on Bigger Pockets. So I saw, you know, you had a couple episodes on there. And I was just blown away from all the the knowledge, experience, overall drive to, you know, you saw so many different opportunities. And, you know, you created an HOA in one of your buildings in the beginning. I thought that was amazing. And there were just so many things that I was like drawn to. I was like, this guy, this guy's a rock star. So fast forward, I mean, you have 400 plus units right now. You're from the Bay Area originally. You live in Arizona. You have time is all like you bought back all of your freedom now with all of these, you know, real estate. What real estate has done for you has definitely been able to buy back your freedom. You can do whatever you want, whatever you, you know, with whoever you want with your family. And which is very awesome. I think a lot of people that are listening are definitely geared towards that lifestyle in the future. So Serge, what's up, brother? How you doing, man? I'm doing great. That was a nice background bio. Yeah. Everything's as good as it could be. Yeah, no, it is for sure. I'm excited. So for anybody out there that doesn't exactly know who you are, do you mind just diving into, you know, who you are, where you're from and what you do exactly? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. As you mentioned, I'm originally from the Bay Area. I come from a corporate background. I was a CPA back in my prior life in 2007, 2008, had the opportunity to uh, explore Arizona. Our uh, company was purchasing another company and we were setting up operations and it was a a good chance to come down. Come 2008, uh, the real estate correction really took hold out here in Arizona. And I just noticed uh, single family houses stacking up for sale and foreclosure crisis got uh, more and more real around me. And uh, at that point, it was pretty easy to uh, see where the numbers were because uh, the, the, the paradox of that time was that uh, housing prices and rental prices weren't moving at the, at the same way. So you had you know, 5 10% drops in uh, rental prices, whereas you had 50 60 70 80% drops in the price of real estate. So uh, I jumped in cold feet, bought my first single family home in January of 2009. And that started the snowball. That started the snowball. It, uh, it was a lot of trial by fire. Um, at that time, there were, certainly were not as many resources as there are today. There were no Bigger Pockets podcasts. There were no, you know, the forums were just getting started. Um, and I uh, didn't particularly have a mentor or anyone telling me how to do it. So what it required, it required a lot of in-game changes, audibles, as we went along. Um, We started noticing over time and tracking financials and and what the financial statements were doing and allowing the numbers to paint the picture of of where we should go next, okay? Mm. 
Um, from day one, uh, I was standing, you know, preaching to anyone that would listen that uh, this may be the buying opportunity of a lifetime. You know, we got to, got to, the, the chance to acquire is not going to be there forever, right? Yeah. We saw that window close um, in different stages, right? First with the Obama tax credit, and then it moved into the uh, recovery. Um, and so we went from buying a certain type of single family to pivoting and buying a completely different type of single family to buying small multifamily to selling specific profiles of homes that didn't meet our revenue or management criteria to creating a management company to then buying small multifamily and acquiring small multifamily um, to kind of where the cycle changed, which was very convenient at the time, where by 2011, 2012 into 2013, you saw single family prices start to recover somewhat while multifamily really hit, started to hit bottom at that point because they mm -hmm. took a little bit longer to get through the foreclosure cycles, uh, the period of stress. You have a commercial owner is going to uh, capitalize a little bit differently than a mom and pop homeowner. So the recession hit them a little bit later and a little bit different, but it did hit them. And come 2012, uh, started seeing the power of multifamily investing where having everything under one roof and uh, the power of multiple checks and frankly, the easier financing. Um, as we saw later into 2014, when the banks started coming back, they started coming back to multi-investors first. So really pivoted at that point from single family, but at the same time, still continued to buy single family and continue to buy single family all the way into last year. Mm. Just for two, uh, you know, looking at single family and multifamily as two completely separate vehicles, there for completely separate reasons and valued and underwritten completely different. Okay. So, so let's dive into that a little bit. You know, why, why are they so different? You know, last year was your last year buying single families. You're kind of last switching. year was my officially last year buying single families. Okay. Um, actually, as I say that, uh, probably going to be purchasing one here yeah. today <laughs> or tomorrow. <laughs> it's just that. You know, I have a, a, a collection of uh, guys at trustee sales and they know what I like and they call yeah. me, they got something and I, not even, not even for myself, I'll buy it and I'll do a note, sell it to another investor. That's a completely different line of business. We can talk about if you like, uh, yeah. Road, but, but yeah, officially for the rental portfolio, single families uh, are out. I've actually been selling single family, probably sold 10 to 15 last year, another five this year, gonna be selling the small multifamily this year. So I'm selling into the market, locking in those gains. And when I say underwritten differently, um, we could look at it through a specific cycle. So how do you underwrite single family through different parts of a cycle? Mm. So what I learned during a down cycle, okay, swing for the fences during a down cycle. Don't necessarily buy for you know the, the property that's going to give you 35% cash on cash, right? You're not necessarily looking for the rental income today, which, which was my mistake back then. What I wanted back then was properties I could buy as cheap as possible that could rent for the highest possible amount. And that worked for me because I was trying to build cash flow to replace my uh, day job. 
Yeah. And I did that. Eventually I did that. You do that long enough, you buy enough of those type of high ROI houses, yep. we'll be able to do that. But the downside is you're replacing it with your time. Those properties, in my experience, you can only self-manage. Um, the uh, Working with a property manager, I'm finding that today. I moved my, one of my most problematic small multifamilies, 10 units, to a, to a so-called professional property manager, and it's not working out. I've gone through a number of them as I try to exit the property management business. And in my personal experience, it is very rare to find a fully competent manager that's going to manage single family homes as well as you are just not going to exist. Um, but anyways, back to what we were talking about underwriting a single family during that time period, I was underwriting it for cash flow. What I should have been doing is underwriting it for IRR, keeping an eye on what is it going to be worth? What is going to have the biggest upside when we come out of the cycle? So what I should have been buying in my example, I should have been buying homes on rarer land in maybe Scottsdale um, or better parts of wherever you want to look at Mesa or Gilbert or whatever had the best long-term demographic potential rather than the stuff that, Yes, it's going to recover as well, but the junk is always going to be junk, yeah. right? So the stuff we were buying for 30 to 50 back then that maybe was getting $1,000 rent today is worth 70 to 100. But if I was buying in Scottsdale for 100 to 150, not necessarily Scottsdale, just different parts of the valley that had more economic uh, outlook, those yep. homes are now 350, 400, 500. So your gain on the back end is is what I'd be looking at in those type of markets. In today's type of markets, all bets are off. It's what are you trying to do? Who are you trying to be? And in today's market, you're probably making more money off of the servicing of real estate, whether you're an agent, whether you're a flipper, whether you're a wholesaler, whether you're selling books, whether you're selling knowledge, then you probably are coming in buying into this market, certainly in certain markets, you know, buying single family stock in Arizona by hell, buying multifamily stock in Arizona, very difficult right now to make a case that you're doing it for the cash flow. Yeah. So it's not just the cash flow that you're concerned with, because that's what you kind of started off with at first, just looking at the current cash flow, but it's also the exit strategy that you want to look at to see, you know, what you're truly making profit wise at you know, when everything is all said and done. And that's right. That's right. And that's difficult to do for a beginning investor, right? As a beginning yeah. investor, what are you trying to do? You're trying to replace your day job income, right? Yeah. You're trying to take back your time. You're trying, you know, you got different uh, goals and it's sometimes it's difficult to say, Hey, uh, you know, my goal is five years down the road to have enough equity to pull it out and buy something bigger, right? Which should yeah. probably be your goal. Um, but that's hard to see when you're buying a property for twice rebuild cost or you're buying a property in a market where during the recession it was, uh, you know, 20% of what it is today and the numbers don't make sense on cash flow even with a 35% down payment. You know, I would tell those people, sometimes it's okay to sit it out. Sometimes it's okay to wait. It really yeah. is. Sometimes it's okay to wait. I waited 10 years. I knew real estate was ultimately going to be the vehicle for me. And when I was in the Bay Area, I had a lot of colleagues uh, between, what, 1999 to 2007. A lot of colleagues in San Francisco, high net worth individuals, executives, 
buying single family houses in markets like Arizona and like Nevada uh, because they couldn't wait it out. They couldn't see it. The only thing they could see is, Hey, this same house in San Jose, you know, or San Mateo would sell for a million dollars. I'm buying it in Chandler, Arizona for 350. Yeah. You can't beat that, right? That's, that's going to be worth a million dollars. If it's worth a million dollars in San Mateo, why wouldn't it be worth a million dollars in Chandler? Well, they found out in Chandler four years later, it was worth a hundred thousand dollars. That never happened in San Mateo. So they couldn't see that. Yeah. Could not foresee that. So sometimes it's good to sit back. I sat back for seven years and when it did finally happen and those opportunities did arise, I had the knowledge, had the money. So, so let's talk about the market for a second because you are very patient, obviously. And you know, you can look at the economics uh, the areas in particular, just like you were mentioning, each area will be a little different. Just being really blunt, I'm not a patient person, unfortunately. I feel like a lot of millennials can kind of relate to that. And, you know, we're a pain in the ass in those uh, type of fashions. I do agree with you, though. I think it is very crucial to, you know, really educate yourself and really just prepare for those better times instead of rushing it and just being, you know, stupid and buying something that's not going to be actually profitable for you at the end of the day. Where do you see the market currently? And, you know, because you are switching up a little bit. I know you might be buying a single family house today or tomorrow, maybe switch it around, turning it into a note. But, you know, why are you focusing more on the multifamily now in comparison? And, and, you know, this could could have so many different reasons. It could just be, you know, where you're at with, you know, your level now and, you know, so many different things. But um, I would like to get your kind of opinion on that. So... With your first question regarding the market, right? Yeah. Um, I'm studying the Industrial Revolution with my daughter for U.S. history, right? Love it. We are in the the, the longest economic expansion since the Industrial Revolution. So yeah. many years in a row with growth. Yeah. And some markets in commercial real estate, we've had the longest growth period in, in multifamily. You can pretty much pick any MSA, any major MSA and see rent growth for seven, eight, nine years straight, literally, which, which is very rare, very rarely happens. So is that rent growth going to continue? Right. Is, uh, within the rent, it's the rent growth that's going to drive valuations, right? So is, is this going to be a, uh, a 10th year an 11th year, a 12th year of economic growth, which has never happened. So I can't predict what's going to happen. I don't know if we're in the seventh inning or the ninth inning. And honestly, I don't care, yeah. I don't care what inning we're in. What I care about is, is I look at it as, as probabilities. If you asked a, not even an investor, if you ask your tenants on the street, uh, you go and you walk and you talk to your tenants and you ask them their confidence. If you say, is next year going to be better than this year? Are you better off this year than you were last year? Right? Your tenants probably aren't that much better off, right? Their rents have increased, right? Their rents have increased year after year after year. They're, they're, they're probably working now, but they're not making more than they made before the recession, yeah. right? Um, so you got to ask yourself in the market you're in, if your tenants aren't doing better, who's going to replace them? Are there people moving into your market that, that are going to be making new money? Are there people moving in from a different market? What are the demographic shifts in your market? And then you look at it, from that perspective of, you know, I don't know what's going to happen in America. I don't know what's going to happen in two years and four years, but I have an idea 
about what's going to happen in my micro market, in my three, four, five cities that I invest in. I have a pretty good idea of capital investment coming in. I have a pretty good idea of population growth. I have a pretty good idea of what people are paying for what type of unit for rent in every micro region, street to street, right? And so what I'm banking on is not what's gonna happen in two years, what's not gonna happen in three years, but what's gonna happen to that street, what's gonna happen to that neighborhood, what's gonna happen to that city, what's gonna happen to that county, right? Mm. And so I feel like uh, I, I can outplay the market because I know what's happening there and that's going to insulate me drastically from what's going to happen. Now, the second question is why multifamily and not single family and such, because with the knowledge I just described, the knowledge that I, I feel I can readily, fairly readily get, and I'm in those markets. I see, I see the numbers from antidotal evidence, like um, how many people are coming in to look at units. In yeah. 128 unit I own uh, down south. How many people every week are coming in? Yeah. If we have 30 people, we just raised prices $20 and we have 30 people coming in when it's been five for the last year, something's going on in that market. And yeah. th that's not going to be reflected on the numbers you see. Remember the numbers you see, population growth, the numbers, whatever the numbers you track, population growth, median income, whatever, they're six months old. And so the investors that are also looking at the same product you, you're looking at, they're looking at numbers that are six months old. Yeah. And numbers change that quick in some of these markets, right? So, so with multifamily, you're, you really are, especially large multifamily, especially a hundred unit, a 200 unit, you're taking a bet on the economy of that street. You're taking a bet on the economy of that city, right? Whereas single family, you're taking a much broader bet. You're taking a bet on where interest rates going to be next year, specifically, you know, 30 year Fannie Mae. What's the FHA limits going to look like? Uh, what's the job market going to look like for the median income uh, person that's buying? What's what's the specific population growth that's making 70,000 plus going to look like? A lot more variables are going to go into that market because homeowners are going to be a lot more on the bubble than a multifamily owner. What I will tell you in specific markets with multifamily, you're going to work a lot harder for it. If you're buying value add or you're going to buy a reposition in Metro Phoenix, there aren't many repositions value add left, you yeah. know, where you're going to come in and, and fix all the units and, and, and make all this extra money. And even then, when you are buying some value add, you're paying as if a big portion of what you're paying is as if it was already done. So you're doing all the heavy lifting and not getting the full multiple. You're getting a partial multiple. Mm. So... For you to buy into this market, you've got to be one of three, really three categories. One, high net worth individual who has been purchasing since the recession, who has a ton of capital gains, and who's moving sideways. For that guy, all the power to you. Maybe you bought a class C, and now you want to upgrade to a class B in a different market, and you're okay overpaying with some of that 1031 money, right? Because you made so much in gains, your loan's going to be low. All the power to that guy, right? The second class is going to be a rookie syndicator that hasn't done many deals before, right? And he's going to underwrite it based on rent continuing to grow four, five, six, seven percent for the next five years during his exit. He's going to underwrite to fixing the units to uh, whatever, 7,500 per door, you know, fixing 100 units, 7,500 per door when his entire experience has been fixing 20 units in his entire life and maybe not even in that region. They don't know if it's going to be 7,500 or 9,500, right? 
Uh, and it's going to be depending on this uh, historical economic expansion continuing over the next seven years. Those are bets that I don't see. Okay. Okay. And then the third person who is moving horizontal from a completely different market, who's looking for more purchasing power, the guy that just sold his 12 pucks in Oakland, yeah. rent controlled piece of junk that he's sick of managing those tenants. But he bought it in 2013. He's sitting on two and a half million gain. All the power to you. Buy something for 10 million in Tucson, Arizona, and let a property man manager manage it for you for a little bit, a little bit more cash flow. Fantastic, yeah. right? But anyone else starting from scratch or rookie syndicate syndicators, I see some pain coming in the next five years for those guys. I did. Mm. I did. Yeah, I mean, you just touched on a lot of good points right there. I, I. Uh... I would definitely agree with you on many points of those. So now you are with your particular area. Um, you are very educated and confident in where the market's heading. So would you mind sharing just a little bit of, I guess, what you see within your areas that you're investing as well as, you know, how are you finding this information? What, could, what type of resources um, could other listeners use out there to be able to get the same confidence and know where their local market is heading? So I specialize in, uh, I, I believe in a specialized approach. You know, if you're throwing darts in a lot of different areas, yeah, um, it's going to be a lot more difficult to make one of those darts stick, right? Um, so uh, I'm, I'm still in the areas that I started in back in when 2009 and, and just every year I build more and more of a specialty in those areas. I've expanded a little bit, but I stay in this in state in Arizona. I'm not against investing out of state, but if you invest out of state, become an expert in where you are. If you're sitting in, uh, in San Francisco or you're sitting in LA and you want to invest in Columbus, Ohio, or you want to invest in Jackson, Mississippi, all the power to you, but grow there, you know, stay there until you're successful um, or cut bait right away. After the first one, say, you know, I don't like the demographics here. I learned a lesson and I'm moving on, but pick something and, and become an expert there. Don't constantly jump around. Yeah, you know, that's, that's huge. In my specific areas, they're, they're very different. I started out in Maricopa County, which is this, you know, as you know, the, the central hub, Phoenix, Scottsdale, Mesa, it's got the, 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 the big cities and um, personally not investing there now. I, I, I don't, why is I, that? I do not see, I, I do not see the value add that I need to make income in the in the lowest hanging fruit i think i i, I listened to a podcast uh, with jay scott a little while ago and he said uh i'm lazy i want to make money money the easiest possible way i like that yeah right? um and we had him on a couple weeks ago he's a rock star super funny yeah, well. yeah. yeah he's fantastic and he you know it rings a bell it's why would you want to invest in the area where you're going to work the hardest to squeak out a, the smallest, right? And the answer for a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of syndicators is, hey, investors know Phoenix. They know Scottsdale. They don't know these outside secondary cities where maybe there's an opportunity. So, but is that a real reason? Isn't it your job to educate? Educate. Right? But at the same time, a lot of syndicators can't take that kind of risk, right? So, for me, uh, I chose a long time ago to specialize in secondary markets. I like markets that uh, counties that are adjacent to major metropolitan counties. Okay. Um, 
and uh, we're in the path of growth, okay? And then in those counties, the information is going to be very, very specific. Everything from local newspapers to see which businesses are coming to town, what, what's happening, to uh, regular demographic, you know, census uh, as it comes out, although that, that information tends to, tends to get stale pretty quickly. And being in that market and being in smaller markets and owning single, uh, owning single family and multifamily in those markets, a lot of the data you gather and see is real time on the ground based on reactions you get from your tenants. They're pushback on your new prices. They're feedback on the job market, the bad debt. You know, your bad debt number in a large multifamily is going to tell you a lot about your market. It's going to tell you a lot about your street and your city. So there's, there's numbers within numbers that tell a complete story. And you can only know that by being in the market, number one, and having experience, number two. You know, you may, you may own real estate for five years and not know what, certain, what stories certain numbers tell you. So it comes with experience. Okay. I love it. So you did just uh, touch on something like, you know, personally, I live here in San Diego, but I do invest uh, in Ohio, very close to Pittsburgh. You know, that area, it's, it's done well for me. But just like you said, starting off, it, it's not really going to appreciate. It's all for the cash flow. So right now, I, I was actually considering jumping into some other markets and uh, some more emerging markets that I can get a little bit of both and, and more into the you know, bigger commercial aspect. Uh, so I, I do appreciate your opinions on, you know, your thoughts in general on that. You know, a young guy like you, what you need to always remember, at least until you built that stack, right? And you're investing in where you want to be ultimately, and it's different for everybody. But a young guy like you, you're going to make your money off of your hustle. In today's market, that's where it's going to be. It's not going to be because you bought something, you know, for so cheap and then four years later it was worth three X. Yeah, right? yeah. That's just today. That's a tall pill to, you know, it's not something that you can bank on. Right. Yeah. But your hustle, that's where it's going to come from. It's going to come from, you know, it's going to come from a, from a partnership, meeting somebody who uh, is going to lead to uh, a, a lot of different opportunities. It's going to be, but to do that, it's being out there. It's being out there, it's meeting people, it's flying to Ohio and meeting property manager. It's meeting yep. other investors on the path. It's like you, like you like to ask, what can I do for you? That's a very relevant question, right? It's that, it's that, your knowledge base. That's what you're gonna make your money off of in today's market, not really that pie in the sky deal that launches your career. <laughs> There's no deal launcher, career launcher right now, but there will be, there will be, and you can find it today but you're not going to find it on LoopNet at, at one in the morning. You know, it's, it's not going to be there waiting for you. you yeah, know? it's typically not ever going to be on LoopNet, but uh, you never know. Who knows? So, you know, you, you did mention there could be opportunities in the future um, as far as possibly the market. But at the same time, just like you mentioned, this is the longest in history that, you know, me personally, I just don't, I don't see that there, that there will be another correction like it's definitely not going to be like 2008, but in the future, do you actually see something that could, you know, be, I guess maybe just market Pacific uh, or nationwide that, that will really lower these numbers drastically? Perhaps, you know, perhaps there's, um, I know nobody has like that crystal ball, but at the same time, you know, I, I know 
you, you've been in the game for a lot longer than I have. So I, I definitely appreciate your opinion. You know, you got to look back a little further than the last cycle, you know, oh, of to, course, yeah, to see. And, and, and you know that the, the previous cycles generally uh, were characterized by flatlining, right? So you'd have um, you'd have periods of growth, seven to 10 percent, call it for a certain numbers, a number of years. And then it was never a, a 25 percent drop for the next four years. Right. That that just didn't happen. What you saw is you saw the market kind of kind of stagnate yep. stay at zero, uh, maybe minus one, minus two, depending where and what. Right. And, and stay that way until it evened out to the historical norm. Right. So we've been so far above the historical norm. But again, that doesn't mean that opportunities don't exist today. You know, I have very uh, smart friends that have been doing syndication <laughs> volume like you can't believe. And they're finding deals in, in markets that uh, haven't recovered to post cycle correction. Not not every market is acting the same. Right. And so it's spotting those differences and, and, and acting. Um, another thing to keep in mind is, um, you know, what you're looking for, you know, those markets that you're talking about that you're in, in Ohio, they didn't go down as much. They haven't gone up as much, yeah. you know, your rents kind of stayed the same. It's blue collar. It's, you know, it serves a purpose. It really does serve a purpose. Right. But I think the question you got to ask yourself is, how is that house going to, what purpose is that house going to serve you in five to 10 years? You yeah. know, what are you going to, what are you going to do? What building block does that house give you? Right. And then another last thing to keep in mind is um, even through this market, there has been a lot of opportunity. So with the single family, another reason why I kept uh, purchasing single family is one of the last pivots in the single family market we did was to vacation rent. Right. So they became expensive. Uh, but before the vacation rental trend, right, Airbnb just started in what, 2012? Yeah. It's a very new phenomenon, right? Not so much anymore. So a lot of homes you see today are being valued on their Airbnb income, right? But three years ago, that wasn't the case. They were being valued on either, you know, single family rents or whatever the market, you know, whatever the market was valuing them. Yeah. But you could buy back then. What, what looked like an expensive home or condo, say for $200,000 that may be rented for 1100 but the Airbnb rent on that was 4000 Yeah, right? the value add right there is just turning it, getting a little bit creative. I love and that. And that was in a tough market. That was in the same market we're in now. And there's still, some of those deals still exist. So the guy that pivoted first, that explored that market first and got that start first that started offering vacation rentals before the market exploded, had that market to themselves two or three years, was able to extrapolate all that income. The, the market still, so there were still good deals. You look back two years ago, even compared to today. So those opportunities still exist. And that's just one example, right? Of course. Yeah. No, I love that. It's definitely pioneering the way as an entrepreneur and really thinking outside the box, getting a little creative and, and seeing what you can do to squeeze a little extra juice out of it. Get in front, getting in front of the new trends, right? Yeah, I love it. So let's switch it up a little bit right here. With your syndications, I know you like focusing on the bigger 100 plus unit complexes. You know, what, what do you like to look for? What is your criteria that you're shooting for? 
let me just be clear. I'm not uh, a syndicator is not what I do or am. I'm not uh, pitching real estate. I've done a syndication and I really enjoyed it. And I still have that property. I did it with a partner that I really respect. And, uh, and I learned a lot in the process, actually. Uh, the rest of my multifamily I own uh, in, my, in my own portfolio. And um, what I look for is, is fairly common. The, the, the number one thing I look for in the asset, in the real estate, is I want something unique to that submarket. That's, that's the most important thing. So what, um, when I mean unique, I mean really knowing your submarket. What do the other apartment complexes look like? Are they all you know, late 60s and early 70s? Are they primarily one bedrooms and studios? Have they been remodeled? Is the whole street already had the value add and they're all remodeled and they're getting top rents? Um, what specifically is going on in that market and how is my complex different? Yeah. Okay? And what that differentiation allows me to do down the road in the next year or two when I do renovate the units or don't renovate, I don't always renovate all the units. That's yeah. not always what the value add needs to be. Um, but what it lets me do is it lets me buck the comps, right? I don't have to be, I don't have to compete on price. I never want to compete on price. I don't want to look at the uh, the CMA and say, everyone else is getting a dollar per square foot. I need to price at 95 cents per square foot because my units are the smallest and the ugliest, right? Or because uh, I just need to keep them full. That's not what I want. I want my units to be either bigger or have the second bathroom or have washer dryer hookups or maybe I have the amenities on my complex that nobody else has. I want to compete for tenants that are coming to me because they want to be there. Not just because my security deposit was the lowest, right? Or because I had the best concession or because I don't want that. Okay. The second thing I'm looking for is, is facial, right? Is uh, humans are very, you know, specific to what something looks like right? We lose our mind. That's right. We lose our mind, right? So I'm very cognizant of two things with my vacation rentals, for example. How does it look like when you open that door? What does it smell like? What colors are they seeing? What materials are they seeing? And you know what? Honestly, I hate to say it, the quality doesn't matter. The quality doesn't matter. Um, So I'm, I'm doing everything to the picture. What's my final picture look like? I do that with my multifamilies. I do that with my vacation rental. When I walk into a unit that I'm remodeling or, or shopping for, for a vacation rental, the thing I'm thinking is, what does that picture look like on Airbnb? What does that, that, that pop shot, that initial picture look like? What is it? You know, and that's what I'm building to. Same thing with a multifamily. I'm thinking, my OM, what do I want my OM to look like? What's my first picture going to be? And I'm looking for that. When I'm walking a property, I'm looking for that first picture right? Yeah. Is it cool with the background? Is it the gym? Is it, is it this? What is my OM going to look like? Okay. Um, so I'm looking for, uh, and the, key, the thing is, is there's no broad strokes. I can't sit here and tell you, I like two bedroom, two baths, a thousand square foot, wood washer, dryer hookups, class B, 1984 bill, you know? Yeah. It needs a standard. Yeah, that happens to be what a lot of my, you know, properties look like right now. Right? Yeah. But, but in a different market or a different city, I'm okay with 1970s or, or, or I want a 1990s. You know, it's completely, completely specific. Now, I also buy, um, specialize in and buy um, Section 42 LIHTC multifamilies. That's low-income housing. Oh, okay. Yes. Yep. 
it's a completely different underwriting and it's a completely different play. And I'll look for something very different in those buildings than I will in a free market deal. Do you, do you mind uh, elaborating a little bit more on that? Because I have heard of this before, um, but is this backed by the government or government assistance with sure. what, what you're doing for the value add? Sure. So a little bit of history here. So in uh, the mid 80s, um, uh, President Reagan and, and, and Congress decided to get out of the public housing business, right? We all remember the, the, the big housing projects in New York and such. And what was happening back then was the government was struggling to maintain, to be in the business of being a landlord, being a property manager. They wanted out of that business. The same yeah. thing that happens to us landlords. The government became a burnt out landlord and decided to uh, basically farm it out to the free market. Okay. And the way they did that is through tax credits, through section 42. And they said, Hey, Mr. Developer, uh, buy the land, come to areas where housing is needed, uh, and we'll give you tax credits generally almost, almost for the, uh, for the full amount of building the property. Right. Mm. So if your property costs 5 million to build, you can get tax credits. And, and, and highly variable. It depends on, you know, how many of the units you set aside for low income. There's a, there's a very rigid formula. And the programs are run by the state, the, the housing departments of the state. And basically, you build it. They give you the credit to build it. You work with the government. And so you basically built this complex for free. And the agreement you make with the state is written on what's called a LURA, a Land Use Restriction Agreement which goes into your deed. It's written into your deed, okay? And what, the de what it says is it says, for the next 30 years, you developer that built this building on our dime for these tax credits, you have to set aside a certain number of units and your rent cannot be higher than a certain amount, okay? So generally it'll look something like this. It'll say 80% of your units need to be set aside for income, median income in that specific county, that's 60% of the median income, depending on how many people per unit. So you'll have, in a 100 unit, you'll have 20 units that are set aside for 60% median income, you'll have 20 units set aside for 40% median income, and you'll have 20 units set aside for 20% median income, okay? okay? So what that equals to, on some of my 20% AMI, I have four bedroom units, 1,200 square foot, four bedroom units that are renting for $300, okay, subsidized. And that's because the original developer got that tax credit. Now the original developer, he was able to build that complex for generally free, but now he's burdened or saddled or whatever you wanna call it with low income tenants, which is, may or may not be a bad thing. Yeah. and guaranteed to keep his rents low, right? Now, are these like Section 8 tenants? Are, are they getting paid from the government? Depending. Some LURAs yeah. say you can only accept Section 8 tenants, and some gotcha. LURAs will say 60%, okay? Uh, so they're all different. They're all different, and it's market to market. So, for example, on the 100 unit that I own, I don't have, any, I don't have much in the way of language of Section 8, but I can accept Section 8 as long as I'm not charging for those specific units more than I'm allowed to. Okay. okay. So, 30 years, it's written into the LURA, but, but at year 15, you're allowed to apply what's called for a qualified contract to get out of the 
to get out of it and convert to a free market. And there's rules around that as well. Okay. So the original developer say he still owns it after year 15. He applies with the state through a process called qualified contract to pull his apartment out of the program. And what the state does is they're allowed to market for the agreed upon qualified contract price. They're allowed to market that property for a year to see if somebody else will buy it for that price and agree to keep it in the program for another 15 years. If nobody buys it during that year, right, then they're out of the program and they go through a three-year deregulation period. After those three years, it's a free market property. So hopefully I didn't lose you along the way. No, this is, this is deep free stuff. Complex. Yeah, yeah, this is deep stuff. So the Laura, it's uh, L-R-R-A? L-U-R-A, Land Use Restriction Agreement. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, I need to do more research on this. I'm, uh, I'm excited about that. that, that that's something... Um, uh, something different. There's a lot of restrictions, obviously, though. There's, there's a lot of restrictions. If you're, you know, a deep red state Republican and you hate government regulation, this might not be for you. Yeah. Right? If you're not good with working with a state government, state housing, you know, so there, there's, you, you, you can't be scared of the government, right? Yeah. Um, there's a lot of costs involved, like it costs $28,000 to file the qualified contract, for example. Uh, it's very difficult to manage while it's in the uh, while it's in the low income program because your gross rents are very low, right? Mm. But what you find is you find developers that generally aren't always wanting to be in the property management business, right? They're in different locations, a lot of times rural locations, right? Uh, and they sell at different stages. So they sell, they can sell at year 10 where if you're a buyer, you're guaranteeing to keep it in the program another seven years, yeah. or they could sell the year before it's up for qualified contract, or they could start the process in selling it. So every single purchase is different. But what is similar is you generally have a seller that's motivated. You generally have less competition because the underwriting and the, the intricacies around it are something a lot of people aren't going to want to do. And you generally have newer, higher quality real estate. You generally have bigger units, two and three bedrooms. You generally have washer dryers in the units. You generally have well-maintained because the state forces the maintenance and does audits and inspections. So it's a different strategy. It's a different look, you know, <laughs> But, uh, you know, different brokers, different conversations, different underwriting, but a completely different tack to take in. And uh, I've been enjoying it. Yeah, I love it. I mean, it, it's just like a, it's another path. It's another opportunity. So uh, I love to explore, um, you know, all the different ways out there to, to get creative. So I, I think that's very awesome. And uh, it's the first time I, I've heard anybody actually taking advantage of that. You know, I have heard of it in the past, but it might have actually been from you. Like last time we were on the phone, I, I think you might have brought it up. So I'm like, huh, that does sound familiar. But yeah, I, yeah, I purchased a, I purchased a 100 unit uh, LIHTC deal um, approximately two years ago now. I purchased it uh, in the final year uh, that it had to be in the program. I purchased it, hired the lawyers, filed the qualified contract, went through the state, did the audits, paid the money. I just had that, I uh, had the, the um, Lura lifted literally two weeks ago. Oh, nice. Um, and, um, and I'm working closely with the state and I take the responsibility seriously, you know, yeah. to provide housing. And it's a very controversial topic. You know, I've had reporters call me and it's uh, um, because there is a housing, affordable, affordable 
you know, housing crisis in the yep. state. There is. And so here I am, you know, buying something and pull, pulling units offline. And in that city, it happened to be the last of those units. Okay. So, you know, I take it seriously. I take it seriously. It's not something that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking to take affordable units off the market. But at the same time, if you want to reinvest in a property, you want to make housing nicer and better for the community, you need what you need in rents. Yeah. Like in the business. No, that, I mean, that makes so much sense. So I love that. Uh, so what, it, what is your focus moving forward? Like this year, do you, do you have any particular goals or just in the next, you know, few years as well moving forward? You know, uh, it's, uh, for right now, it is primarily moving out of the single family product. Um, I went from, um, very over, uh, exposed to single family to sell first selling the most difficult to manage properties. Now I'm down to kind of the core, uh, best located assets. Um, yeah. so I'm looking to sell probably literally all of them this year into next year, completely be out of the single family game, keep some vacation rentals. You know, we have fun with the vacation rentals, you know, um, at, at, at times when it's no longer fun, get rid of those recapitalize, and ultimately be in a position with four to maybe six hundred plus multifamily buildings at different stages in their value add cycle. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and I'm not afraid to sell. I'm not afraid to lock in gains. I don't look at any purchase or any building or any real estate as I'm going to have this till I die right. you know? <laughs> or that my kids want to manage this later. You know, yeah. I'm not thinking that far ahead. Um, I'm thinking, you know, to have solid income base where I can be as involved or as little involved as I want to. Right now I'm involved in the multifamily. I still manage a lot of my single families. So I'm very involved right now, but uh, I also realized that probably next year I don't want to be as involved. And okay. it took me a long time. It took me a long time to come around on the power of professional management. I have professional uh, local property managers at the uh, multifamilies. They do a fantastic job. A job I could never, never do on my own. Yeah. It took me probably seven years to come around to that. That they do exist. You know, good property managers use. I used to manage all my own, including uh, multifamily. Really? Even your multifamily? Yeah. No kidding. So did you have, you know, I think that in certain areas there might be uh, regulations, you know, over a certain amount of units that you need somebody on site. Did you just kind of pick uh, somebody random or, you know, obviously somebody that would uh, be able to hold the title and the job? Well, there is that regulation. There is that regulation in California. In Arizona, there is not that regulation. Okay. Uh, if you, as long as you're managing your own, you can't yeah. manage for others. Um, but I generally always did have somebody on site at the bigger stuff. I had I have a, have a resident manager. But what I found, it just became too difficult. The relationship between the owner and the, uh, the manager on the ground, there needs to be a line between there, right? It's, it's very difficult when you go to the office and, and uh, the, um, the manager there on the ground is telling you, we need a new computer, we need a new printer, this needs to be painted, this needs lights, you know, and some things you need, some things you don't, but they're not seeing they don't know your plan. They're not seeing yeah. the business the way you're seeing it, right? Yeah. So it's very hard to say no without you being the cheap landlord that doesn't whatever. 
with a regional in between you in between you two and you can sit down with the regional and the regional is business oriented knows your plan worth the budget the regional has no problem saying no the reason regional has no problem being in between um, and and when you have uh, the, on the, at the bigger complexes it's pretty important it's pretty important to have that so I found and I was just getting really burnt out you know driving down and having the meetings and the rent roll and why did this person not pay and signing leases so about six months ago, my wife and I agreed, we're not signing, we're not doing leases anymore. We're just not doing leases. We're not sending them, we're not signing them, we're not preparing them, we're not showing units. That just has to end, you yeah. know? And so that was the first step, first step in that process. So it's, it's, it's a journey to becoming more and more passive. Okay. And not always trying to squeeze the last penny out of your properties, you know? There's something to be said in quantity and each property holding their own rather than, you know, just squeezing the most you can through your time, start to value time a little bit more when you get, when you get to 40, you know, you just value yeah. that time a lot more. Yeah. No, I, it's so valuable. It's worth more to you. Yeah, no, I, I can definitely, uh, I can see that. Um, I, I truly am a big believer that time is your biggest asset. So if you're wasting that, then, you know, it's way more important than, than the money you can make because <clears throat> money will always come and go. Um, you know, I think there's certain blessings that I've naturally walked into just doing it randomly. Like I kind of jumped into rentals, uh, firsthand when a lot of other people out there might jump into like fix and flips for like, you know, big lump sums at first. Also because all mine are virtual, I haven't met a lot of my tenants and I, I've had no choice but to hire out a lot of things for showing the property or lease it. It's all through like e-sign or you know just virtually over uh email so there's i can imagine though being close by i'm the type of person uh that i i wouldn't want to hire that out and i would want to be you know face to face kind of check out their car like you know really uh body language it would be very very strong and important to me and i'd probably it might hold me back to a small degree also probably keep me a little bit more safe i don't know you know there, there's so many different things but i'm curious with single family right now obviously you're, you're spending more time and I'm managing my properties as well, because like you said, nobody's going to care more about your investments than yourself. And, and when you are at these lower units, I guess they're not as professional as, or think the same as far as, you know, when you're dealing with the, the bigger, huge multifamily buildings, you know, those property managers, they think they, they know your vision, which is very crucial. It's very, very important. So I'm curious, you know, is there any other reasons why you're totally kind of exiting this year of the single family besides, obviously, it's just driving you a little bit more crazy, a little bit more time consuming than you would like it to be? Well, two things, two things. The first is the return on equity is of out of whack. Yeah. So it's out of whack. You know, yeah. it's, uh, I can sit there all day and look at, Hey, I bought it for this and now it's renting for this. Wow. You know, the returns and I've refinanced it and it's 0% yeah. infinite returns. I can sit there and, and, and that doesn't get me excited anymore. Okay. No? okay. Now that, I'm looking that's what's at exciting it. to me right now. That, that's what yeah, I'm it used to be excited. Yeah. You sit there and say, wow, you know, um, these returns out of thin air is so fantastic. Yeah, that's I got great. no money into it. I'm super excited. It's cash flowing like crazy. You know? It's fantastic. It's fantastic, yeah. you know. But but now that some of these are worth 350 you know, and, you know, when I bought them, the rents were 1400 and now they're 1800 Well, I look at it. 
350 towards a down payment on something bigger, you know, I'd rather have that 350 than that rent generally, you know, is, 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 is what it's coming down to. The second thing is um, the, the, I always thought that as soon as I got big enough with single family, as soon as I got to that 30 of them or 40 of them or 50 of them or whatever that number was in, in my mind, that it would become scalable. And one day I realized, and I realized it with, you know, dealing with, dealing with my vendors, frankly, dealing with my vendors, I realized this, said, you know, single family will never be scalable, period. Mm. You know, you can manage it yourself and you can squeeze the profits and you can do the showings and you can run out, run around after your vendors and negotiate the best deals and you can make it a success and you can make money and you can live off of it. Absolutely. A ton of people have proven that. Okay. But is there going to be a way that you're going to scale that single family business and run it as well as the guy that owns 120 units under one roof? Never, never. Right. Or are you going to give it to a property manager that has the, the, the systems in place and can manage it like that? I guess those guys exist. I, I guess they exist. I know they exist. I know they exist somewhere, somehow. I haven't met them yet, but I know they exist, right? So if you're lucky enough and you find that, um, you know, the only way to really do it is, is what I tried to do, which is buy as many of them as you can, open a property, uh, set up shop as a property manager, scale to as many units as you can, and then have, you know, be able to hire a regional to take care of everything for you, right? Mm. Problem there is there's not, there's just the margins aren't there on single family. The margins aren't there when you're looking yeah. at hundred dollars per door or whatever, you know, some of these deals do after debt, you just don't have those kind of margins to hire an operations manager. You need 200 of those single families. And then, and then you're talking about the, the, the sheer paperwork, right? I got uh, 50, you know, you have 50 single families, you have 50 insurance policies, right? Yeah. You can get a blanket commercial, which makes that a little bit easier. But I, I remember, you know, the meetings I'd have with my insurance broker trying to figure out which houses I still have and which houses I don't. I'm finding out I'm paying insurance on houses I sold two years ago, right? Or yeah. the, the premium's wrong. You know, the mortgages, the, the property tax bills, all of that. I have a 128 unit that I don't get any mail. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't get any mail. Yeah. You know, I go down there twice a year when the fruit trees are blooming to pick, you know, pick loquat fruits you know, and, 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 and meet with my manager and we raise the rent 30 bucks and boom, I have an extra $2,000 in six months straight to the bottom line. Yeah. That's what I like, you know, and I can, I can add as much value as I want. I can add value by going down there and working with the manager on the ground through the bad debt issues. You know, why, why is that growing? Why are we giving out five day notice fast enough? I can go, I can work with the vendors I choose to work with to remodel the office or to do the landscaping or to pick the palm trees. Maybe I'm in, you know, maybe I'm in the mood where I like landscaping that month um, and I'll be a little bit more involved there. But with the single family, it was just relentless. And, and then the final reason was, frankly, was the treatment of these houses. You know, I had a lot, I had a lot of uh, bigger, you know, kind of, the, the uniqueness factor that we talked about in multifamily, I've been following that same thing in single family. So I was buying houses that were four bedroom, that were with pools, that were with very nice, nice stuff that I was able to get higher rent for, uh, from. That, and it worked like, out for me. Out. It, it stood that? out. It stood out in comparison to what was around. Maybe it, you know, the average was like a two bedroom, one bath. You would yeah. find something with bigger. Yeah. That's right. And so I was able to get higher rents and it's great now because they're worth more money now on the back end. But 
man, I'd get these tenants and they were long-term tenants, which was great for a year or two, but every time the house, I mean, would be destroyed. Maybe one out of 10, I'd get the house back in decent condition, right? So the house would be destroyed every single time, right? And so, uh, you know, back in 2011, when I'm painting a 1500 square foot house for 750 bucks, because I'm driving around and, and, and finding the cheapest vendor and buying the paint myself and doing, you know, doing all this stuff to save money. Today, I'm paying 2200 bucks to paint, you know, a 1600 square foot house. So uh, have you ever turned a house where a tenant's been in there for a year where you don't have to repaint it? Right. And that's like the best case scenario. That's like the best case scenario. They left me with only a paint job. Right? Yeah. Um, and so the deposits here are a thousand bucks, 1200 bucks. The deposits are tiny. They don't cover shit. Right. So you're doing the, the best case scenario. You're doing the paint, you're doing the carpet. And generally I'm doing everything, you know, I'm, I'm having to redo the cabinets, all my fixtures. I'm having to put in new appliances. And so it's like all that profit from the last two years is gone just to give it to the next tenant. That's going to destroy it again. So, um, you know, it can be done in, in the multifamily. It's, a, it's just different. It's, it's just different. They also destroy units, but we harden them. We have a process. I have a handyman that's, I have a, a maintenance tech that's on a payroll that's going to do it no matter what. It's different. It's different. My numbers look very, very different than the portfolio of single family. And honestly, here I am, a guy that built a portfolio of single family homes, maybe as high as 60, 70 single family homes. Okay. Yeah. Over five years, I'd see years where I made great money in certain areas and different and I adjust and adjust, but over five years and with my basis, which is probably 20% of what the next guy that bought it and is renting it out. I still did not make that much money on cash flow. Seriously. Like, like I'm talking real cash flow, not, you know, pulled all your money out and you made a dollar. So you made a thousand percent return. I'm talking like real cash flow. It wasn't great. And you were buying right though, correct? I was buying right. I was remodeling, but I was finding I had to remodel them three or four times over five years. Damn, Serge, you're scaring the hell out of me right now on these, uh, on the residential side. <laughs> you know, it's tough, you know, in times where labor is cheap and you're very involved, you, you kind of have to be very involved. You know, I have a good friend that I've sold a lot of these houses to. And he's very involved and he's like you, he's uh, he has a different business in the Bay area. He buys these and he flies down and he manages his team and he keeps his costs low and he does all this stuff. The, the fact of the matter is that's kind of the only way you can do it. You know, yeah. there's a million other ways to do it, but if you, if you want to live off the cash flow specifically, it's challenging. It's challenging. I learned early. I'm not buying, you know, the newer, 2,800 square foot, two level, kind of the, the stucco houses you see in Arizona. I had some of those and those were costing, you know, $14,000 turns. $14,000. One dog and you're replacing 2,000 square feet of carpet. You're, you're, you know, you're painting a 2,300 square foot, 2,400 square foot house. You know, you're basically guaranteed with the best tenant, you're guaranteed to have to do your landscaping, full trash out. They didn't, they didn't pull one weed the whole time. They don't do their own landscaping. It's very, very rare. A tenant does So you're doing landscaping. You're repainting the entire house. You're, if they had one dog, you're probably doing the carpet, right? They don't change their filters. Yeah. You can get on a filter change program. Have fun with that. Uh, coordinating yep. tenants, getting in and finding somebody to go do it. Have fun with that. Yeah. Right? yeah. So they're not replacing the filters. So you got damage to your air conditioner. And on top of that, so you're spending 14,000. And on top of that, 
they're complaining and threatening to sue you for their $900 deposit back because everything to them is wear and tear, right? So I guess with, uh, there's no like way to really make it like rents or renters kind of protected, but to a certain degree, like I'm not putting carpet in my, in my properties. Um, I'm putting, you know, laminate, you know, waterproof flooring. Um, and, uh, I don't know, there, there's certain things that I really like to try to minimize to really make it, I don't know, not as, uh, like so far, at least my, my turnovers, it's been like $1,500 that I've had to spend, which is still a pain in the ass, but it's not, it's not throwing off the books too much because at the end of the day, you know, I, I require, especially depending on certain situations, if they have a dog, I'm asking for two months security deposit. So I, I haven't been like in the red yet. Uh, so knock on wood somewhere around here, but, but it is, it is very like eye opening to see, I can totally, I can see where that can happen. I, I truly can. And as you're exiting out of these single families, it makes so much sense that, you know, why it's so much more just systemized in the multifamily. You know, you can show up and, and help out on a certain month if you're feeling like it, or uh, otherwise, you know, everything's just running a lot smoother in comparison to all the paperwork that can get very crazy. I mean, I have a file cabinet over here. It's, it's a huge ass file cabinet. I only have 10 properties right now, but it, it's getting full. <laughs> it doesn't um, end, it doesn't end. And you know, it's uh, you're in single family, you're making money off yourself. You're making money off your hustle. That's what it comes down to. And as long as you have the energy to continue that hustle, but, but systemizing it, scaling it, um, making real millions on your balance sheet off of it, it's difficult. It's yeah. difficult. Uh, in multifamily, you can really control it. I mean, there's just, you, you lay out the advantages of multifamily over single family. And I love single family as a way, place to start. I love self-managing as a way to learn, right? Yeah. But I would always keep my eye on the prize of, of, of what is the ultimate, what ultimately are these single families for? You yep. know, and I realized about three years into collecting them that they're going to be a store of value. They're going to be a bank account for me where I can store value in between when I can't find multifamily, you know, uh, in between those, if I have cash, I'm going to put it into some good deals where I know there's guaranteed equity, you know, yep. and the cash flow would be just a bonus or as a building block where I can sell batches and move into multifamily, mm -hmm. right? Um, but uh, it, it, it wasn't the end game for me. When I started, I thought it was. When I started, all I wanted, I said, if I could get to a position where I could own 10 free and clear and have you know $9,000 gross income off of those 10, what else in life could you possibly want, right? That was it. That was my dream for the longest time, you know? And then I got to 10 and it was like, ah, really not making that much money, <laughs> you know, really not and I had a job and I needed to keep my job, you know, and I was like, I thought I'd be able to stop by then, you know, um, but uh, it was, it was my first, that first multifamily deal, the 32 unit that, uh, that I was able to kind of run through a full value add and sell it that I talked about in one of the bigger pockets interview that really opened my eyes, that really opened my eyes that, there's a lot of ways to create value. Plus all the ways to get into it. You know what I mean? You can get in, you can buy it yourself. You can buy it with a partner. You can syndicate it. You can, you know, there's a lot of ways to do it. The fact that you can rely and do it with professional property managers together and they're in that model, you know, um, it's, uh, and there's a lot of, you know, the shit can hit the fan 
for me, it, it, the market can completely turn. Some of these cities, these populations could be left for dead. I never forget that during the recession, a lot of these cities that I invest in, they were left for dead. Yeah, literally, couldn't sell anything there. Um, the only way to get out was through foreclosure. Tenants left, rents dropped. I never forget that. I yeah. will never forget that, and that 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 can happen to me, you know. But I also know that. I can take over management and manage these things again if I wanted to, right? I know that there's a lot of levers I can pull to really cut my expenses if I needed to. I know that there's a backup plan and the only way to have those is by buying, buying these assets at the right price, you know? And when you're buying some of these assets, like I see, I see some of these deals that, uh, oh, I, don't even, I don't even wanna get into it. I see some of these deals that um, I see no path towards success. You know, I think uh, there's, there's honestly syndicators out there doing it for the fee, doing it for the fee. And I'm, I'm looking, I, you know, ultimately probably in five years, I won't even buy my own multifamily. I'll just invest with a, with a syndicator that I know and trust right now. Right. He's getting yeah. good, good enough returns. Right. Um, but if I'm, if I'm an investor at that level, right, I'm a, I have a high paying job somewhere, you know, wherever in my high, high price city. And I'm looking for the guy ask him, just ask him, what did he buy during the greatest buying opportunity in a generation, right? What, what assets did he buy? What assets did he sell? Tell me the last two assets that you've turned. Show me the last value add you did. Let me walk a, let me walk a complex. You know, if you're, if you're a, a, a million dollar a year dentist in San Diego, right? And you want to invest with somebody, just make sure he's done it before. Yeah. See, see what he's, you know, or, or are you investing in marketing, right? A lot of these guys are all marketing, you know, they're doing courses to teach you how to learn. Well, they're doing courses to teach you to show you how smart they are, basically. Right? Mm. That's what the course is for. Let me show you how smart I am. Let me make this sound as, as complex as can be so that you just decide to invest your money with me instead. Oh. Right? It's true. You know, I, I see it. It's not I see that it. complex. Yeah. Here's the, Here's the secret. It's not that complex. You yeah. know, I have friends, you know, that, uh, that they'll, they'll go through this underwriting model. I'll nail it to the thousand dollars within the thousand dollar per door of what, what the strike price can be in, in, in a minute, in a minute, literally in my, in my market, at least in my yeah. market. I love that. I, I, I mean, I see it. I, I've seen it and uh, I know exactly what you're talking about. So, um, so I'm glad you bring up that point because, um, because some people are trying to kind of distract you from and make it seem more overwhelming than it truly is or has to be. And, and that's where the fear comes into play because a lot of people out there are living in fear and you know, the what if, or I haven't done it yet. So the, the scary part of, you know, the unknown and, and really it comes down to just a little bit of education. Obviously, putting in the, the time over time, there's a lot of hands on, uh, you know, just experience that's going to come naturally, that is going to really, you know, help to find a lot of that, uh, that overall knowledge. But networking, like you said, is extremely important. And, you know, you, you can you can jump on the phone call and really uh, get a lot more, you know, education from somebody that's already been there uh, and done it like yourself. Well, you know, two things. If, if I have half a million dollars in an IRA that I want to deploy into real estate yeah. it, or, or a mutual fund, okay, 
are you going to give somebody that entire $500,000, that mutual fund manager, are you going to give it to him if this is the first stock he's ever bought? Yeah. Or the second stock or the third stock, right? Are you going to let him learn on you? No. (laughs) Right? Now, why on earth would you do that when there's so many other mutual fund managers that have have a 10-year proven track record that have said, okay, this is what I owned during before the last cycle. This is how I adjusted through that cycle. This is this, what this where I screwed up in certain areas as well. And this is what I learned from it. You know, yeah. that's, you know, he's going to be ready to, to he's, you know, he's going to be ready to manage that asset through the next cycle. That's what I want to know. I want to know how you reacted and what you did and what were your ethics. Right? Yeah. And, and, and rather than look how smart I am on an Excel spreadsheet, invest with me. Ah, you want to be in getting interviewed on the next episode of American Greed. Okay. You know, fantastic. Uh, but there's just too many other good guys out there that it's just too easy. It's too easy to, to find a good syndicator to then to roll the dice. I love it. I love it, Serge. So quickly on, uh, I want to hear two things from you. Um, first of all, if you don't mind me asking, you know, when was it, I guess that you, you felt comfortable enough to, to leave your job and, uh, and, and to be able to focus strictly on real estate, um, I guess your portfolio size, or was there a certain number in mind? Like what was it that felt comfortable to, to be able to exit? You know, for me, it worked out perfect because it was a combination of, um, uh, what happened was the company I was working on, working at, we were, I, I was feverishly working since the day I landed in Arizona to be ready. Right. Because, I had seen it my whole entire life, the corporate cycle, right? Corporations have cycles too. Yeah. Uh, and the corporate this cycle. A, this was a startup though, right? That you were a part of or no? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, this was a, a startup. I came in pretty much at the, uh, at the beginning stages um, in the Bay Area. And uh, I, I knew that ultimately the exit plan for that company was to sell was to sell yeah. the company. And I also knew that where I was, I was the corporate controller. I knew that... Um, I would never be worried about a job. I knew that in accounting, that wouldn't be the issue, but I also knew that I was overhead. So you know? the, the corporate controller, that's somebody that does all the financial aspects, correct? Correct. Okay. Correct. Yeah. So, you know, balance sheet, income statement, budgets, SEC so, so reporting. You, you knew where they were heading anyway. <laughs> well, well before they did. Yeah. Yeah. And I was in the negotiations on a couple of uh, failed, uh, okay. you know, so, so I, I knew and I was feverishly working to that date. Right. Yeah. I wasn't going to leave without mine. Right. I had stock. I had, so if it took another 10 years, I would have been there. Right. So, I, yeah. but my goal was that, Hey, this is going to be my last job. And that's what I told myself all the time. This is going to be my last job. I'm not worried about building my skills. I'm not worried about being a better accountant. You know, yeah. I'm not going to CPE credit to learn the next this or that. I don't care about that. Right. Yeah. I care about replacing my income and that's where I was. And so I'd be out at lunch. You know, I'd be, you know, 1130, I'd be out and I'd be walking property, you know, or signing a lease. Literally, I'd be doing that. Um, But what happened was we actually um, got into a deal, negotiated a deal, sold the company to a huge uh, public company. So our our shares transferred. So I, I stood to make and did make a decent pop, not life changing in any way. Okay. Anyway, not something that I'd retire on or, or, or even feel that great about. I felt it, you know, it could have been a lot better, but it was just enough to make me feel comfortable okay. where 
I can see where the income takes me. And it was 2012 coming into the yeah. greatest, you know, run. Opportunity. Right. And so I combined that with a sale of a 32 unit that I already did. And that led to three or four other deals. And that led to some, it just it all led constantly moving, always led to the right direction. Yeah. So yeah I never you're, stopped. You're, you're no sucker. You're hustling at the right time. And you also were identifying all the opportunities around you. So, you know, it, it wasn't the best exit strategy. Thing. What was here's it? The interesting takeaway though. Yeah. These are all the stuff I did back then. It, they, every deal I did, looking back in hindsight, made great returns, right? But yeah. today, even with the prospect of such great returns, knowing the amount of work involved, I would not do any of those deals today. Really? No, none of them. I wouldn't touch that 32 unit that I did. I wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole right now. Oh, right? I love and it. The guys that bought it did, are doing great. They're doing fantastic. I mean, it's probably worth 2.5x. 2 no kidding. Yeah, they're doing great. A bigger pockets guy from your oh. neck of the woods. Yeah, so, so why, why not? Why wouldn't you touch it? That tenant class, that tenant class was, uh, life is crazy. too short. Life is too short. Yeah, okay. Life is too short for that tenant class. It, uh, it's sanity. hard for me to get excited with a $15,000, you know, gross rent roll, knowing yep. what's going to be left after with that tenant class. Yep. Look, it's the same amount of work for me to turn over a 32 unit. Yep. It's more, let me tell you this, it's, Three X the work to turn over a 32 unit than it is 132. I love that. Three X. I love that. Yeah. That's, That's right. so good. It's, cool. it's hard to forget, but it's hard to get into it. The problem is it's hard to get into the 132 unit. It's just yep. getting into it is hard. But once you're in and it snowballs and you know what you're doing, you can really build a competitive advantage. You really can. I love that. All right, so one more question because I, I know you, you're, you're a busy man. You got other things to do, and I have sucked you dry with uh, enough of your time today. But um, just curious, you know, your opinion on, on uh, you know, single family versus multifamily, the cycles. You know, like, it, do you think they align and go hand in hand, or is there kind of one above the other? Um, you know, it's uh, if you go by the book, right? Uh, yeah. they, there's you, there's a there's a chart that lays it out pretty well of, of wh where specific commercial and residential go during any cycle. What recovers first? Yeah. What recovers second? And wh how does it fall back down? Right? I think Ken McElroy did a good job in one of his books uh, mm -hmm. describing that. Um, but you know, also like can, market. They, Market Pacific, obviously, you know, that, that has a lot to do with it as well, but just curious overall. Yeah, they're, they're, they're generally going to go hand in hand as far as their, uh, as their inputs, right? Because interest rates are going to react a little bit differently. You know, the multifamily investor is not sitting there. doesn't necessarily care so much what the Fed is doing on a day-to-day -day basis, but we're, we're, where the bond traders are looking, whereas the 30-year fixed mortgage can go in a different rate, but generally you're going to see the same trends, right? Mm -hmm. um, because at the end of the day, multifamily business relies on how well their tenants are doing, right? Yeah. So you can talk about the politics of it and say, you know, you get great tax breaks and pass-throughs and this and that, and making investment income worth more, you know, the tax cuts are great, but I always want to know, how are my tenants getting affected by that? Did those tax cuts help my tenants? Because they could help me save whatever in taxes. I already got plenty of ways to save money in taxes. I don't need another 20% pass through on investment income or whatever. It's nice. I yeah. love it. Yeah. But I want to see 
my tenants do well. I want to see, you know, my tenants being able to move up from to pay 700 to 900 in rent and not be shocked into another city, you know, and get kicked out. Um, so, and, and, and the thing about that is your tenants and today's tenants in multifamily are tomorrow's purchasers in single family. Ooh, that's good. That's so true. That kind of tells you everything you need to know. Just that's so true. That cycle and, you know, so, so it's, so yes, it's linked. It's linked. But the, 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 the single family homes, the, the big difference is the single family homes are going to move at the whim of um, all the same inputs, population growth and job growth and such. But in single family, you're going to have a hard time adding value, right? Yeah, you can buy a, a, a fixer upper, you know, yeah. a piece of junk fixer upper and remodel it and hope you can remodel it cheaper than the next guy. But those have been so compressed and the margin's so low yeah. You know, on a multifamily, I know exactly how I can add value. And it's not always the same way. A lot of these guys out there selling some of these deals will tell you it's got to be a $300 spread or it's got to be fixing up all the units. Bullshit. Yeah. Bullshit. If you hear it's got to be one way, no. Every single one of my multifamilies added value in a completely different way. Yeah. In a no. completely different way. Do you, do you try to, do you typically like to leave a little bit of meat on the bone as you're exiting for the next I do. Month? Yeah. I'm not greedy. I'm not a greedy seller. I'm not a greedy seller. I'm not. Well, it's um, also harder to sell that way. You're, you're really niching it down to, you know, somebody with a ton of extra cash or, you know, one of the other uh, ways of somebody just trying to park their money in there. That's right. I'm not looking for a sucker. I'm yeah. not looking for a sucker. You know, I'm not, I'm looking, when I'm looking, I'm saying, what do I look for when I went, when I buy? Yeah. What I do like to do is I like to leave a little bit of value add for the next guy. Of course. Right. Um, I do. And so that they can see where it can go and where, you know, where rents can be because they need some excitement too. They need to, they, you know, they don't want, they don't want to be stuck at an entry cap rate. They want year two cap rate to look like something, something this, but, um, I am generally turning, I'm, I'm, I'm most likely going to be selling my first, first of my multifamilies this year. I'm working with brokers now. So I'm sell, even selling multifamilies as well. Okay. Um, so my multifamilies are spread between two smaller ones, 60 units and two larger ones, hundred plus. And so ultimately I want to move out of the less than 100 into 100 plus, you know, okay. I got the same payroll. I got the same payroll on 128 units as I do on 60, you know, really? but the reason it, it works for me, less headache and less headache. And, uh, and it's just, it, it, it it works, you know, your, 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 the velocity of your improvements are, are that much faster. You know, if I can raise rents 20 bucks, it just means that much more on 128 unit than it does on a 60. Yep. But, but for me, it's all about being in the same market. So the, the, the 60 unit and the 128 are in the same city across the street, right? So I'm able to share payroll and have some economies of scale, but I wouldn't want to be in a 60 unit and that's it. I'd probably have to self-manage that. Yeah. can't really afford great payroll, you know, unless your average rents are going to be over a thousand. If you have a 60 unit and your average rents are $500, well, it's going to be tough. You're going to self-manage yeah. that. And that, that is one of the key factors, I believe, when it comes down to, you know, once you hit over that hundred unit mark, then you can get those property management and you can afford it. Because before it's the hundred unit mark, I don't know if it's the hundred unit mark or not. I probably, if I was pinned down to it, I'd probably say, your gross rent roll, you probably want over 40 grand, 40 grand, 45 grand gross rent roll. You start getting under 30, you're probably self-managing it to make anything meaningful. And again, that's not hard and true either. 
That's not hard. Yeah, to yeah. Do, yeah. You know, it really isn't. But you know, if I have a property that has a 20,000, 15,000 gross rent roll, you know, I don't see much room to have payroll there. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Serge, you were the man, brother. I, I truly appreciate all the time giving back to the listeners and just letting me pick your brain because I'm always learning something amazing from you. I definitely want to uh, add value in your life, you know, throughout the throughout the following years and, and be able to give back to you because I, I swear every time I talk to you, it's something new that I'm picking off you. Um, and, and not just one or two things. I feel like I got a whole laundry list now of uh, of, of things that I can do in the future and uh, just ex- express more education on to, to better myself. So I truly appreciate you. Is there anything that the listeners, because I, I guarantee you, it's not just me that's taking a lot of this value. Uh, a lot of the listeners right here are, are definitely taking notes. They're action takers. They're going to implement this stuff. Um, is there anything that the listeners or I could do personally for you to give back? You know, not for me, not for me, but, but stay hungry, you know, stay hungry, keep doing podcasts, keep getting out there, keep meeting people. What you're doing now has as much or more value than, than your 10 units in Ohio. That's right. Seriously, that that's where your capital is right there. What you're doing right now and for everybody else, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's been fun. Yeah. Appreciate you. So just like the beer commercial, what is it? <laughs> you stay know, stay hungry, hungry out there. Yeah, that's right. Stay hungry, my friends. Cool. Um, it, you know, is, is there any way that, you know, people can get in touch with you or connect with you if, uh, if they have any questions or, or want to? Yeah. Yeah. I'm on bigger pockets. Um, you can find me on Facebook, Serge Shukat. Um, I'm available. You'll find me. If someone okay. wants me, they'll find me. That's right. That is so true. Cool. Well, Serge, you're the man, brother. I truly like 100% above and beyond. I, I really love this conversation and I definitely want to, um, you know, connect more with you and add value to your life. You're a rock star. Definitely appreciate your time, brother. Um, for anybody else out there, if you guys found value in this, I know you have, uh, make sure you check out, this is just behind the scenes right now. So make sure you jump on to iTunes, subscribe, leave a review and uh, send that over to me, screenshot it, send it over to me anywhere on social media. You can find me on Instagram, Brandon Elliott Investments, um, social media, uh, Facebook, facebook.com slash Brandon Elliott, R-E-I. Um, or you can check me out on my website, brandonelliottinvestments.com. Send me a screenshot of that. I will send you my book, Action Driven, 100% absolutely free. Otherwise, you can find it on uh, Amazon, um, very cheap. So hook you guys up. And, um, otherwise if you just Google it, you can find it anywhere else. Uh, the podcast ready, set, go real estate investing podcast, uh, besides iTunes, but appreciate you guys all so much. And, uh, till next time you guys all stay blessed. Serge, appreciate you brother. Cool, man. That was fun. This has been another episode of ready, set, go real estate investing podcast brought to you by Brandon Elliott. For more information, please visit BrandonElliottInvestments.com. Also, please don't forget to like, share, and leave a comment below. Thanks again for joining. 